I have here in studio John Whitmore Jenkins. He is the author of Looking Through a Glass Darkly. You might recognize that allusion uh, to early literature. It's called the New Testament. Uh, I recognize the reference. Listen, I, this is a great book. It's, it, it's subtitled Divided America and the Gathering Storm. And I have a letter from Mr. Jenkins about what this book is about, but I read the table of contents and I love so much the organization of the book. Just just listen to this and see what you think. Okay, part one, a quarter century of failed leadership, starting with the Depression and the World War uh, Wars. Chapter one, revisiting the Wizard of Oz. Chapter two, the missing brains, heart, and courage to lead. Chapter three, the wizards behind the curtain and the witches covering their backs. And I thought, where is chapter four about the grifters and the sellouts? And who would that have been in The Wizard of Oz? But I just read even just this piece right here. And this alone, I want to read the book right away. So great job on putting together uh, your table of contents. And it goes on to explain the, the unprecedented abundance following the Second World War created an illusion for the younger generation that individual responsibility was obsolete. And I thought that was a really, really great way to put it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So there were a couple of chapters that you directed me to, Mr. Jenkins, that were uh, very much kind of in line with the messaging on my show, which is mostly about, you know, talking about ceding our individual rights, wealth, and sovereignty because of the climate change narrative, the false narrative, not climate change, but the narrative Um and so you you have a list of Ponzi schemes here that our government is running on us. Um, Ponzi scheme number four. Weather wizards try to control the Earth's climate. And I love it. It starts the hubris of those claiming they could control a pandemic or control the Earth's climate. Uh, you know, join the Keynesian economics people. And then you have some beautiful prose here that I want to share uh, beginning with the hockey stick graph, by the way, which is having a, a 12-year culmination now into a defamation trial against Michael Mann, who's uh, put out the hockey stick, versus uh, Mark Stein, who is a you know media person who criticized it rightly. So they're fighting right now in court, right now. Um, beginning with the hockey stick graph, former Vice President Gore popularized a new religion that could give meaning to otherwise empty lives. Add money to the bank accounts of the nation's elite insiders and bring praise from our brain-challenged media. I'm like, what beautiful prose this is. So this is great. So let me ask you, um, as you go through sort of dissecting from what would be really your lifetime and forward, because we're starting at the end of the Depression and the World Wars, tracing where we are right now. Um, You have a Harvard MBA. Uh, class of 63, so to give people an idea. Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote the book because I was part of the generation that created the great wealth that we had right after World War II. And I started with IBM in 63, right at the point when punch card equipment went to computers. Okay. So I helped <clears throat> create this beautiful prosperity that we've had. And then... If you look at what happened from 9-11 to where we are today, all of a sudden, it's a different world. And so I 
took the analogy of the Wizard of Oz of Dorothy, who was uh, wiped out into a, uh, a whirlwind from Kansas and dropped into this strange new world of Oz. And I've tried to make it so that the general reader can get into what's really happened to us over this period of time. Yeah, and I love, and you know, people should know there's hope in this book. This isn't just a diagnostic. This isn't just a complaint, a complaint of, of modern society. There's hope at the end because there's a chapter that's titled Dorothy's Magic Shoes and the U.S. Constitution, which I love. Okay, I'm a lawyer, <laughs> and uh, I love the law. I've taken the oath more than once. I can't even repeat it without tearing up that I will defend the U.S. Constitution and uphold it. Uh, but defended against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so I think it's the greatest governing document ever drafted in the history of mankind. I, I marvel day by day at how even now, despite every attack and every attempt to undermine it from every direction, we actually still have this document. It's still alive. They haven't taken us down yet because of what's in the document. It stands between us and, and tyranny. Well, you'll notice at the end of the book, Dorothy clicks her two heels together, which is the Constitution, and that got her back home. Right. So if we're going to get back home, we're going to have to get back to the Constitution, and we, the people, control the Constitution. The Constitution was written for we, the people, not for the bureaucrats in Washington. No. And you are, you are uh, not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. And- I'm not an <clears throat> activist. No, you're a, you're a business person. Actually, in some ways, you have the most credibility because here's what I learned from seven years of working on Capitol Hill as counsel. Uh, I believe naively when I came out of law school, as do all the 20 year olds that run Capitol Hill, I believed that if only I showed up and helped to bring together the best ideas, we could solve problems. I didn't understand that a lot of people on Capitol Hill were not looking to solve problems. In fact, they were benefiting from the exacerbation of problems or continuance of problems. And it seemed to me, with the grass is always greener syndrome, that it's always the money people, the business people, the Harvard MBAs, the Wall Street people, they always got their way no matter what we could draft, no matter what uh, was happening with the public. I'll give you an example. And I'll have you react to this because you're you are an MBA from Harvard, um, and I and I, I like you. I say it very respectfully. <laughs> um, I, I was I had just arrived on Capitol Hill. It was 2006. Talk radio hosts were telling their listeners to blow up the line on Capitol Hill to all the offices to do something about immigration. Now it was 2006. I just arrived. We have five phone lines in the office that light up. As soon as you would sit the phone down, it would ring again. you pick it right back up, the whole staff, because we couldn't field all the calls from all the people demanding immigration, uh, not reform, not amnesty, but action to seal the border. Okay. Well, instead of prioritizing that in the Judiciary Committee, which is where I was focused, the leadership ran all of these hearings on the horse slaughter bill. Madeline Pickens, you know, Boone Pickens' wife, horse slaughter bill. And this went on for weeks until the election. And then we forgot about it. Um, what turned out to be true was that, at least on the Republican side, it was all the business people in the Chamber of Commerce, hotels, restaurants. They want that illegal immigration. They want the cheap labor. Also, our, our agriculture farmers wanted it for cheap labor. 
What I'm saying is, it just seemed to me like no matter what the Constitution said about how things were supposed to work, the business people, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, franchises, whatever, would show up and just say what they wanted. And by golly, that's what happened. So from where I was sitting, I felt like maybe I went to the wrong school. Instead of the law school, I should have gone to the business school. And from there, I would have had a lot more influence and kept these kinds of things from happening. So I wanted to be you, <laughs> and you're writing about my role. Uh-huh. So what is your thought about, as, as time has gone on over your lifetime, um, you, you, you kind of identify who's to blame in a way, some of them, some of them. But how do we fix that problem where money talks? At the end of the day, ideas sometimes lose to interests. Well, the... Harvard Business School gave me three things. Uh, First off, it gave me a beautiful appreciation of Boston and where this all started. Uh, Concord Bridge was my favorite spot there. Mm -hmm. Second thing is I found my wife there. She was from Puerto Rico, and uh, she and her roommates uh, set up uh, between Harvard, MIT, and the Harvard Business School to find husbands. (sighs) And the third thing I got there was... Was she at the Rhode Island School of Design? (laughs) (laughs) That's where you all look for for ladies, right? I heard and then the, the third thing I got out of it was the case method of study. Yep. And I've tried to use that in here because you can't see through everything that's going on. Uh, case method would give us facts, and you had to extrapolate from that. So I tr- tried in the book to extrapolate from what's available to us into what we can use uh, rationally to move forward. And one of the things that if we talk about the Constitution— when we change the Constitution, we reorganize how our government works. And when we change the uh, Constitution for the president's uh, term of office from unlimited to eight years, all of a sudden the Congress became more important than the presidency because they outlived the presidency. And then if you look at we change the senators from being elected in, by the state legislatures all of a sudden we have national election of senators and the big money comes in. And so it's not Texas or our locals are electing the senators. It's where the money goes. If you were to look at uh, the current legislative setup today, there are 30 legislatures in the states and governors with both uh, legislative uh, sections that are Republican. If we were electing senators by those states, we would have 60 senators. Now we have 49 because they're elected nationally by the money that you just mentioned. Yeah, no, that's a really excellent point. And, you know, first of all, no one has ever made the point to me up to, the, up to this point in my life, which is remarkable since I actually served as a counsel to the subcommittee on the Constitution as chairman, um, that money was injected into politics by virtue of direct election of senators. So once upon a time, the states sent their senators. The the state uh, elected officials chose senators. Uh, Then there was an amendment, and now we all vote for who's the senator. Uh, And then, so therefore, big money can pour into a state uh, to the the voters and uh, exert an influence on the outcome. So interesting, and and a solid point, too, you made, where the Constitution is not... The Bill of Rights. A lot of people think when they think Constitution, they're thinking of free speech and Second Amendment. It's all that stuff, too. But those are amendments, too. 
the Constitution. The Constitution is actually how the government is is uh, structured. So divided government, the three branches and all this business. Um, executive, legislative, judicial. And you mentioned quite astutely the sleight of hand that happened, um, especially in the second half of the last century, where rather than things working according to how we were taught, which is that you and I elect a representative who goes to the state house and decides what the policy will be, they punted that responsibility for voting to the bureaucracy, the administrative state, almost like a fourth branch of government now, except we don't elect them. We can't hold them accountable. So you were a business person. You were regulated by the administrative state. What do we do? What do you, what do you think needs to be done to fix this, this hidden branch of government over here that's out of our reach? We can't even name the names of the people <laughs> writing the regulations that are killing our businesses, like oil and gas, but other things too. What do we do? Well, we have to also recognize that the administrative state is part of a what I call an, a cabal of establishment types in there. The administrative state goes on forever because you can't fire them. The bureaucrats cycle back and forth between this one and that one. And then we have what I call the elected uh, congressmen that are blacking in heart, uh, courage, and brains, <laughs> and they become the leaders. And so right. they, the cabal then becomes the administrative state, a few of these old guys that have been up there forever, which we could name if we wanted to, and then the fellow travelers, which become our uh, mainstream press, uh, our universities, and I can tell you a lot about Harvard if you want to later on, and uh, the... Uh, new oligarchs that we've created here, which are running our social media. And if you take those top social media oligarchs, they control, oh, a trillion dollars or more. And compare that to what our $25 to help our local congressman get elected, it's, it's, it's piddling. So we're so unbalanced there, we've got to somehow tear this oligarchy apart and rebuild it into a, to a new thing that more... Re, uh, reflects what our constitution looks like. Right. Well, and, and there is a way. I mean, we do have um, antitrust law. We can destroy monopolies. We can uh, we can stop the control of speech uh, where they are. We now know they're taking directives directly from the government to control speech, which is illegal. Uh, it violates the First Amendment when we can prove that uh, definitively, and now we can. So there are a few solutions. Um, I like that in this whole book, which is very broad, you included a chapter titled, What Happens When the Lights Go Out? I talk about this a lot. I'm, I'm extremely concerned about, for example, the security of the electric grid because I feel like it's, it's perhaps the most asymmetrical weapon out there for someone who would want to cause us harm. Or, or even the sun has solar flares that can destroy the grid if you don't harden it. A natural phenomenon can, can harm the grid. But I'm actually worried more about uh, state actors. If they take out the grid, it's a kill shot. We, we don't survive that. So I'm, I'm interested in why you thought this belonged in this book, because I love this. But very few people are, are clued into this, this issue. Well, the problem with the uh, global warning people is that they're taking our grid and, and destabilizing it so that the solar flares are the... Uh, 
uh, global winters from uh, uh, volcanoes or other natural phenomena uh, will actually destroy our civilization. We're based on a just-in-time uh, phenomena, which is based on communications, computers, the satellites, and everything. You take those out for 30 days, and everybody starves to death. I mean, that's the end of it. So we've created such a complex civilization now based on that. And, of course, I feel a little obligated because I was right at the beginning of the computer age. Uh, we were teaching uh, IBM executives about artificial intelligence before we'd created enough memory to have artificial intelligence. Yeah. So, we, you know, like, um, I, I want to go back to your volcano point because I thought that was so astute. Again, and a point that I've never heard despite paying attention for a while now to this issue, which was that if a volcano were severe enough, or if even like we had a, a Yucatan Peninsula asteroid, there was a fraction of what the big one was that we talk about all the time. Your point was, if you throw enough um, um, particulate matter into the atmosphere to block out the sun, and solar is running the grid, you don't have any power. And at the same time, if I understood what the point you were making, uh, that would, of course, change the wind patterns as well on the Earth. And if you're relying on wind, literally, you're at the mercy of a bad volcano, uh, you know, which uh, people would be shocked at how often volcanoes erupt around the world. Uh, and Krakatoa being very famous, yes, uh, in particular, one that probably the one known best. Yeah, they give us uh, th- two, three, four, five years of global winter. Yeah, and if we're depending thirty percent or fifty percent on solar, hey, we don't have any electricity anymore. That would be a mass casualty event. Yes, that would be a a, a, a it would be the worst genocide. It'd be like Noah's flood. Yeah, it would be it would be extreme. Yeah. Like uh, billions are at risk uh, yes. should that happen. So I thought it was a very uh, astute point because no one. I mean, people talk to me about volcanoes and about Krakatoa and about its ability to cool the Earth by virtue of reflecting uh, sunlight. We, we we talk about those points, but no one has actually thought about the vulnerability of a grid that relies on wind and solar. At least that's the first time I've seen it raised, uh, and you go into it in the book. So um, there's a lot here to go through. I love, though, that you give hope. Like, there's, I, this book has hope. It has, it has the way out. It has a path. And the path, the Constitution being laid down by people who lived over 250 years ago. Really, it, as I said, I marvel at this. I they cannot were di- believe. They were divinely inspired. Had to be. Because, I mean, they, now they had lots of history to draw from. So they could look back on Athens and Rome and, and see what had been uh, worked and not worked before. But they knew about human nature and divided the power, understanding mankind's nature. And so, you know, as I was saying, even now, it, all the time, I mean, I, I, I didn't go into the wrong uh, business. I was just joking earlier. I'm glad I'm a constitutional lawyer by, by training and by background. But, um, but this is the way out. So I always say the First Amendment is kind of like the tools in the toolbox, you know, free speech, free press, uh, freedom to assemble and petition the government. As long as you keep those tools in the toolbox strong, whatever else goes wrong in the rest of the Constitution, you can fix it. But if you lose those, I don't see how you fix anything. So what do you see? I've got two minutes. What do you see is the most pressing issue for us 
and restoring the Constitution, and how do we do it? Well, we've got to get our elected representatives uh, back on the side of the people. And uh, our Congress, uh, Senate and House, have been ruled by dict- virtual dictators. Nancy Pelosi on one side, we've got McConnell and uh, Schumer on the other side. They're part of this administrative state that's ruling things. Uh, you notice every one of them is now multimillionaires. Yes. Uh, How does that happen? McConnell and uh, and uh, Schumer are over a hundred million dollars. I did not. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Know Ma- that. McConnell and uh, Pelosi are over a hundred million dollars. Uh, so they're the ones that are uh, perpetuating this oligarchy of which is almost a dictatorship. Now we've got to first get rid of all of the old uh, heads that are sitting up there. Yeah. And my solution for that is we we can the Constitution provides for a convention of states, and the convention of states could uh, put term limits back on the uh, Congress people, and uh, if we put it at just reasonable limits, we'd get rid of the top thirty percent of the old ones, and hopefully we'd get some new people that we could have the people would have influence. They'd see that we're calling the shots now, not the the dictators up in up in Washington. Yeah, term limits being one of the biggest, uh, the omission of term limits being one of the biggest mistakes. Uh, I think by the founders, there weren't many, but that was that was one of a few. Uh, outstanding. And then I would actually say for as long as you are in office, you know, you cannot trade in, in anything that your decisions can possibly impact, which would be almost zero, right, for a member of Congress or their family. Well, that would immediately eliminate about 100% of them. They would get out of there. Uh, you know, I, I really we have to find some extreme ways, or, or you can't lobby for a foreign government ever after you leave uh, federal service or being a, a cabinet member. So I have some ideas I'd like to push out there to try to disentangle uh, the people who are are leading things from their own self interest as opposed to everyone else's. So um, anyway, but we are out of time. But again, it's called looking through a glass darkly. Divided America in the gathering storm by John Whitmore Jenkins. And I trust we can find this on Amazon, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Find it on Amazon. And you, you have another book. What's the name of it? Uh, my other book is uh, The Blessed Generation, yes. 50 Years on the Cutting Edge of Rapid Change. Fantastic. And I tell the story of how we created this beautiful prosperity and how we were blessed to be born at that time and be able to participate in it. All right. Wonderful. John Whitmore Jenkins, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much.